Sentire Media. Hello, you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 162, The Italian Wars 2, Opening Hostilities and the Medici Get Kicked Out. E così ritorno su, lasci colli nelle valli, tra due salici piangenti, io ritrovo la speranza di un amore che ormai fu. We last left Charles VIII of France departing Grenoble with a large army to go and claim his throne, that of the Kingdom of Naples. The issue was that someone was already sitting on said throne, and that was the new Neapolitan king, Alphonse II, who felt it had been his because it had been his father's. The French king had been encouraged in this idea by various people, first among them the de facto Duke of Milan, Ludovico Sforza, known as Il Moro. Charles's plan included a two-pronged attack. One part of his army would head first to Genoa and then towards Naples by sea, thanks to the Genoese fleet, while the rest of the army would take the land route. Perhaps the ideal situation would have been to get all the army directly to Naples via sea, avoiding mountain passages, malaria-ridden swamps, and possible hostile territories, although no single Italian force could cause much problems to the French. However, there were not enough ships for everyone to get on, Perhaps Venice could have supplied a sufficiently sized fleet, but they were keeping cautiously neutral. So, two-pronged attack it was. But it was not the French who actually opened up the hostilities, it was the Neapolitans. After a failed attempt at provoking a rebellion in Genoa, they sent up a fleet and attempted to engage the French and Genoese a couple of times. First, they attempted to take Porto Venere, a strategic port further south from Genoa, but were pushed back. Next, the Neapolitans managed to get a foothold on the land near Rapallo, but the army was cut off and suffered heavy losses. It is here that the Italians first had the chance to remark at what they saw as the savagery of the French troops, a sign that warfare was changing. Things went a little better on the other front, with the son of the King of Naples, Ferdinand, Duke of Calabria, attacking Milanese territory through the Romagna region. Unfortunately, he could not or would not press his advantage. Incidentally, the Duke of Calabria was the title of the first-born son of the King of Naples, an heir to the throne, a bit like the Prince of Wales in the United Kingdom. The modern-day region of Calabria is the toe of the boot that is Italy, great for a less expensive seaside holiday and lovely spicy food. Meanwhile, Charlie headed into Italy. That meant that the first Italian territory to pass through would be that of the House of Savoy. That was an easy stop, as the duchy had been under the influence of France for some time now. Etiquette would have dictated that King Charles of France be met by the Duke of Savoy, also called Charles, and maybe he was, but Duke Charles probably wouldn't have had much to say, except maybe something like, me hungry, or mummy, 
because he was two years old. It is more likely that the king was welcomed by the mummy in question, Bianca of Montefeltro, mother of the young duke. She not only had to put up with this rather inconvenient houseguest with all his thousands of soldiers, but the French king also had the gall to ask her for a hefty loan to support his expedition. Bianca couldn't refuse and ended up having to pawn the family jewels to put up the money for the loan that wasn't paid back for five years. While a guest of the Savoy, King Charles was joined in the expedition by the great-uncle of the young duke, Philip Lackland, so-called because he didn't have much of a claim to land of his own. I mention him in passing because when the young duke died in 1496, at the age of eight, it would be Philip Lackland to become duke, and therefore Lackland to lots of land. He only lasted a year as duke, so you can also forget his name if you want. After passing through the Sousa Valley, then Turin, Charles made his way to Asti. Side note, nowadays Asti is a great place for those who love sparkling white wine. Anyway, in Asti, Charles was met by Ludovico Sforza and his other big fan in Italy, Ercole d'Este, Duke of Ferrara, who had come on board hoping to use the French to get back territories he had lost to Venice in the War of Ferrara or Salt War we have mentioned loads of times. When they met the king, they made as if to bow to him, but he lifted them up and they all entered Asti together like old buddies. Then poor Charlie got what possibly could have been smallpox and had to rest up for a couple of weeks. After that, the next stop on the magical mystery tour was Pavia, where he went to see the Duke of Milan, the real Duke, Gian Galeazzo, the party boy who was more interested in enjoying himself than any sort of duchy activity. Just a reminder, Ludovico il Moro was exercising power in his nephew's name. His nephew was married to Isabella of Aragon, daughter of the now King Alphonse II. She was the only one that was not at all happy with this power-managing agreement. At first, she outright refused to see Charles. Then she did meet him and fell to his feet and begged for him to help with the situation in Milan and to leave the throne of Naples to her father. Charles was sympathetic to her plight, but he could hardly turn on his main ally or turn around and give up the expedition he had been so hyped up about. So he just moved on. This was on the 14th of October, 1494. One week later, Duke Gian Galeazzo, ignoring his doctor's indications, stuffed his face and managed to die of indigestion. This fun-loving guy asked for his favourite dogs and horses to be brought beside his deathbed so he could see them one last time and say goodbye. Soon after we had the whole farce we spoke about, Ludovico Moro went before the council in Milan and suggested that the young son of Giangaleazzo, Francesco, be made duke. At the same time, he made sure his men in the council knew exactly what they had to say. No, 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 they said. We can't have a child as duke in these troubled times when passing ruffians can say ni to old ladies at will. We need a strong and experienced hand at the helm. So it was 
that Ludovico Sforza saying, who, me, no, I possibly couldn't, yeah, well, okay, if you insist, became Duke of Milan, for now. Before we leave him, we just need to dwell on one curious aspect. When Il Moro became Duke, you would imagine that the King of Naples, Alphonse II, father of the now ousted Duchess Isabella, and he whom Sforza had called in Charles to depose, would be disgusted, although not surprised. Yet, his reaction was to send congratulations to Ludovico. Was this just a case of Machiavellian Italian Realpolitique, in the face of a fait accompli? Or was there something fishy going on under the surface? We'll leave that hanging for now, because Charles is heading for Florence next. So, Florence. Traditionally, Florence had been pro-Angevin, so pro-French. There was a strong presence of Florentine merchants and bank branches in France. On the other hand, the leadership of Florence, i.e., in this case, Piero de' Medici, son of Lorenzo the Magnificent, was rather ambiguous. The Pieros of the Medici family didn't really go down that well in history. This Piero's grandfather, father of Lorenzo, had been Piero of the Gout, not something you really want to be remembered for. This Piero, son of Lorenzo, would go down in history as Piero il Fatuo, meaning fatuous. If, like me, you still don't know what that means and had to look it up, it's silly or pointless. Piero the Pointless. Now, how's that for leaving a good memory of yourself? In his defense, we could say that he was thrust into a position of power at a very early age, due to his father's untimely demise at 43. Then again, the same had happened to Lorenzo, and he had done okay for himself. Now, Piero the Pointless continued to dither. Charles had already expelled some Florentine bankers from France, but cleverly only those close to the Medici. Piero still continued to dither when the French actually entered Tuscany and took the vital castle of Fivizzano by stealth. At this point, Piero de' Medici panicked, went out to meet Charles, and handed over to the king control of other vital fortresses and cities, Sarzana, Pietrasanta, Pisa, and Livorno, with the understanding it was only for the duration of the French stay in Italy he may have also handed over his backbone while he was at it. The issue was that he did not have the authority to do this. When he headed back to Florence and the Signoria heard what he had done, they were not impressed at all. It was not hard for the faction in the city that had supported the French from the beginning to pass a vote and the Medici were expelled from Florence on the 9th of November, 1494. The tide, turning against the Medici, could very well have led also to their physical demise, but it was here, in his pointlessness, that Piero shows some vision. He had made sure that one gate in and out of Florence, Porta San Gallo, remained free and guarded by Medici men. It was out of this gate that the Medici, Piero with his brothers Giulio and Giovanni, the future Pope, made their escape and headed into exile, to bide their time and seek a way back in. 
the Medici would make it. Piero de' Medici would not. Aside from the exile of the Medici, the passage of Charles through Tuscany had a second side effect. Around the time the Medici were getting exiled, Charles had entered the city of Pisa in triumph. The Pisans saw him as a liberator from the heavy yoke of the Florentine Republic, under which the Pisans had chafed since 1406. The king gave audience to a series of Pisan representatives, and among them was Simon Francesco Orlandi, who, in front of the Florentine representatives, and therefore risking his life, denounced the oppression of Florence, and asked for the restoration of the former glory of the Pisan Republic. Before the Florentines could get their hands on Orlandi, the people of Pisa revolted, expelling the Florentines and declaring the Second Pisan Republic. They made the move under the conviction that they would have the continuous support of the French in favour of Pisan independence. It was not to be. From the very beginning, the captain Charles had left in charge of the newest Pisan fortress had instructions to give it back to the Florentines, although he ended up selling it back to the St. Pisans. Legend would have it for the love of a young Pisan girl called Camilla Dellante. Interestingly, traces of the deep-rooted hatred between Pisa and Florence can still be found to this day. I recently had the great pleasure of visiting the school of Don Lorenzo Milani in Barbiana, a small mountain town near Florence which deserves and will get a special episode. Anyway, the tour guide there reminded us of a proverb that goes, and forgive my appalling Florentine accent, meglio un morto in casa che un pisano all'uscio. Better a death in the house than a pisan at the threshold. While we are digressing, if you are wondering about Italian accents, although I am Piedmontese by birth, my accent now has a slight Emilia tinge to it. One difference from the Tuscan one is that they pronounce their C's as H's, so casa becomes haza. Accents and proverbs aside, back to Charles VIII. After his stay in Pisa, he headed to Florence. He was met on the way by the new temporary leader of the Republic, a man by the name of Piero Capponi, who had been an ambassador of Lorenzo de' Medici, but then had turned against his son Piero. An extenuating negotiation began, in which Charles is supposed to have threatened at a certain point, Then we shall sound our horns! To which Capponi supposed to have answered, Then we shall sound the bells! This, of course, didn't mean that they were organising a concert or a dance-off for the fate of Florence, but that the king was threatening to lay siege and Caponi to resist. Faced with the prospect of a long siege of a major city, Charles gave in and was content with the possession of the port cities of Pisa and Livorno and continued on his way. Before we follow him, we must visit with the Florentines for a bit. Something interesting is about to happen there. Their first order of business, now that the Medici were gone, was to set out a new form of government with a brand new constitution and all. Among the people called up for this task 
was a man who now had a great moral influence over the city. Not a banker, not a politician, not a merchant, but a friar, the prior of the convent of San Marco, Girolamo Savonarola, a pretty big name in the history of Florence and Italy in general, as we will see. Thank you very, very much for listening. Thanks in particular to my lovely, lovely Patreon supporters. Starting with the second half of the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Jeff M, Jeffrey W, John W, Jordan, Juan Diego, Julia, Justin, Old John in Milwaukee, Orlando, Kevin, Linus, Mark P, Marianne, Marxist-Leninist Sicilian, Mela, Michus Parchus, Mike, Neville, and Niels. Then, of course, the tippy-top, Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri level, Lisa K, Andrew M, Peter W, David L, Rinat, David, J.W., Sen, David A, Karen, Peter, Helenka, Kaiser Bosch, and Brigid. If you'd like to get in touch, you are more than welcome to do so. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com If, like the Patreon supporters, you would like to have access to ad-free episodes in advance and extra content, you can go to the support page of our website, ahistoryofitaly.com, and become a Patreon supporter for as little as a dollar a month. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. Pierrot de Medici, here you are, finally. Well, I was busy. The dog ate my homework, my alarm didn't go off, and my grandma died. Oh, uh, I don't really know what to do with that. So, have you understood that there is no opposing the might of the French army? That I, Charles, son of Louis, am destined to You can have it. What? You can have Sarzana, Pietra Santa, Pisa, and Livorno. Ah, uh, okay then, good. Um, it is just that uh, I had all of this speech prepared. And the paintings. Oh, oh yeah, I like it. And a turnip harvest. The turnip harvest? Well, uh, I suppose... I need uh, to feed my troops, but then I don't... I have arranged to have a large array of kitchen sinks delivered. Ah, well, I'm, uh, you know, kind of on a... And a carefully selected arrangement of ornamental flower baskets. Um, okay, well, um, just leave them uh, uh, there and I'll get them on the way back, yeah? And my grandma. Is it dead one? All the grandmas of Florence. Uh, listen, Medici, let's just stick with the cities. Uh, leave all of the other stuff.
in the corner of the city, and we'll look into it later, okay? Okay. What a weirdo. Some days later. Who are you? I am Piero Capponi, representative of the Republic of Florence. Are all of the Florentines called Piero or something? Just the ones called Piero. Ah, um... What do you want? I am coming to take control of Florence, and I want lots of cash and castles and stuff. You will not. And no cash or castles and no stuff. Well, th that's not a very good negotiation tactic. Y yes, it is. It is not? Yes, it is. Time's a million. Now you're just contradicting me. No, I'm not. Now you're just being silly. You're silly and you're short. Ah, how dare you? I am the king of France. Says who? Says God. Well, he didn't say it to me. Ah, my patience is at an end. We will sound our horns. Oh, no. We will wing our bells and do a dance. Do you not understand, fool? I will lay siege to your city. And we will sing, oops, I did it again, and have a communal farting session where the wind is blowing in your direction. What? What? I... You and your soldiers will be called hilarious and offensive names day and night until you can't stand it no longer and start to cry and go home. This is silly. We will have a great feast with malodorous cheeses and much garlic and sneak into your tents at night to burp and to be flatulent. You will forever be known as the stinky king with his stinky tents and his stinky army. Look. What? Can I have just pizza and Livorno and be on my way? Uh, okay. Captains, sound the order. We march for Rome. See ya. Good negotiations. Oh, bite me. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.